This is an ABC podcast. Hey, Nat Tanjic here, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I podcast, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and the owners of the lands on which you're listening to this. Pay respects to elders past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Happy NAIDOC Week to you! NAIDOC Week is all about celebrating the culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And on this episode, we're exploring the lives and stories of LGBTQ plus First Nations people while finding out about the experience of living across sometimes conflicting identities. Because a new study from Edith Cowan University has found that life for queer Indigenous people can be a real challenge, with discrimination coming in at many sides. Participants said they not only experience racism from the broader community, but from within queer spaces as well, while some deal with queer phobia from within their mob. They found that more than 73% of participants experienced discrimination. Almost 13% had been homeless or experienced housing insecurity. A third felt invisible within the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, while just 45.2% felt that they actually belonged to a wider LGBTIQ community. And 41% said they did not disclose they were Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander when they used dating apps due to fear of discrimination. So what world do you belong in and how do you bring those worlds together? Well, we're going to break down these figures, look at what role colonialism still plays when it comes to queerness and Aboriginal communities, discuss why there's racism in queer spaces and why it's so blatant, find out what belonging really means and find out how far we still have to go to tackle discrimination in both Indigenous and queer worlds. Joining me to take on this mighty task is Nick Ritchie, non-binary journalist and TikToker of the Arab country in the Torres Strait, Gumbanyari woman Aretha Brown, who's a comedian and artist, writer and poet Laniok, a proud Larrakia, Kungarakan and Gurinchi woman, and living on Awabakal country, Jojo Zaho, Birupi and Warumi drag queen, who you would have seen on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. Let's get into it. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it, it's a week to celebrate and, um, you know, and, and celebrate the achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And I want to get into some positives in a moment. But I want to speak to those stats first from Edith Cowan University, um, particularly the experiences of racism and the experiences of racism in the queer community. I'll start with you, Nick. Is this something that you sort of seen and felt in in your life moving through the world as a Torres Strait Islander, Aboriginal and queer person? Yeah, definitely. When I basically first started university, it was my first experience interacting with um, queer spaces and queer groups. And I was basically dropped into the deep end because I didn't get to grow up and interacting with any of that. Um, But going into those groups in university was actually very unsafe for me as as a First Nations person because um, all the experiences that I had was, uh, I was the only black person there. And I would have people thinking that they could call me the N-word or call me slurs uh, because they just happened to be gay. Like, just because they were gay, they had, like, some sort of access to me as a First Nations person and calling me upsetting things. And also just being, like fetishized 
by them all. And I'm just like, and here I am like a 19 year old just being fetishized when I'm just trying to make friends and find my own personal identity at the time. Yeah, it's it's not on. Uh, Aretha, when we spoke to you before the show, that was something you mentioned as well, that fetishization is, is a thing that happens. What does that feel like? How, how does that make you feel? And what would you want to say um, about that experience? Yeah, I, th- I think we're speaking about like the use of, was it dating apps? And in the study, it was saying, you know, um, a lot of Indigenous people like hide the fact they're Indigenous on social media and dating apps, but I kind of had the opposite approach is like if I was using a dating app I would almost put my Aboriginality as like the first thing just to kind of weed out races pretty much you know it was like definitely wearing an Aboriginal flag shirt or like making a joke here or there about it but like very much at the forefront um and I suppose with that came the the people that that was like the opening line or like that was like oh this is what we speak about now or you know um it, it it's, it's 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 a weird thing to kind of navigate because it's like oh this is the most important part of my identity, but at the same time, it's also just another subset of my identity. So it's hard to to juggle. So yeah, I I, I don't know how I deal with it. I just kind of do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, totally. And you've um had dating experiences, uh, like queer dating experiences, and you know experiences dating um in I guess the het appearing world as well. What has the difference been in terms of um I guess fetishization and like reaction? to race and, and your indigeneity in, in di- those different spaces? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like with men it's always been like, oh, so you're indigenous. Like that's uh, that's very exotic. And I always like to make the joke that it's like, you know, you came here. Like I've been in the same spot <laughs> 65,000 years. You're exotic. You're from like the British Isles or something. <laughs> what are you doing here getting all sunburnt, you know? Like what? You're exotic, you know? But for men it's like that's like the in. And then I suppose for women it's just like <laughs> – I finally like when I date girls it's like they're almost like too scared to bring it up on the first date and I think it's it's really sweet actually it's like oh I know indigenous but I didn't want to say it first like it's like some naughty word to bring up and it's like (laughs) oh it's like this like guilt and I'm like it's okay like I'm indigenous that's what I am you know you're allowed to bring it up first or you know I just find there's almost like um it's almost like treading on water a little bit more when I date girls and it's like am I allowed to mention this? Is it racist if I bring it up? <laughs> you know, it's like the exact opposite. So yeah, I don't know. Have you guys had similar experiences? Like, yeah. How is everyone else feeling about that? No, I, I've definitely had to deal with that as well. Um, especially the gay community being so violently toxic. <laughs> so there's no nice way to put around it. Like it's just, it is, it's horrible, especially with, with apps like Grindr and Tinder and and just that, again, the fetishization of it is just something that comes up so often and it'll it'll sneak its way in or they'll come at you like straight to the point with it. And it's just like, the love of God, block, ignore, like this isn't what I'm here for. And particularly with like things like Grindr, when I was single, because I've been in a relationship for about three years now, when I was single, it was quite in the thick of that that no fats, no femmes, no blacks, no Asians kind of era where it was plastered on everyone's thing, which made it great for me to be like, okay, block, block, block. Because <laughs> um, I'm like, thank you for identifying yourself as a um, as a piece of crap. Now I can cut you out. <laughs> and it would almost come from, from like the nice guy types as well sometimes. I would often find more than anything, like at least the, the ones that were up front about it were up front about it, but sometimes it would come up in a sneaky way where all of a sudden you're just like, what the hell is happening? No. But it's, it's definitely hard trying to date or being both queer and Indigenous. Like, 
you're not safe from dickheads anywhere. <laughs> Sorry, can I say that? <laughs> dickheads all dickheads all round, Jojo. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm really curious about, like, because Nick said before about this idea of, um, you know, people in the particularly in the gay community, like feeling like they have a free pass. Like it, it happens in so many other spaces. We did an episode a couple of years ago on um being a person of color in the queer community more generally, like. Why do you think people just kind of let that fly in a way when they should understand why they shouldn't be behaving that way? I think for a lot of people it comes from ignorance mostly is a you're a minority, I'm a minority, like we're minorities together and then gives them this sense of they're entitled to to have that in like open communication with you in a way that they think is fun and and, and friendly but really it's just incredibly aggressive. Um, and it's just those casual microaggressions that we constantly have to deal with. But I think for them, it particularly comes from you're a minority, where I'm a minority, like I've got access to this. Like, And I know in some queer and homosexual circles, they will often use words that were and still are considered quite derogatory in a casual way. So I think for a lot of them, it's like, well, we can use this word in a casual way. So you're a minority as well. That gives me access to use your hurt words in a casual way. And I think it just comes down to stupidity. <laughs> I feel like a lot of that behaviour and that sort of like weaponizing of intersection is usually demonstrated by white queers that sort of like grasping onto some identity of oppression so that they can continue to occupy spaces and enforce whiteness in violent ways, but then use the get out of jail free card of, yeah, but I'm also gay. In, I think in a very similar way that white women weaponize being a woman and being oppressed. And so I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to take up this space mm-hmm. because I'm a minority without actually sort of addressing the power of whiteness and the power to I think like have a platform and and become the identity of that intersection do you know what I mean like mm. I think that queer circles are incredibly white I think that the concept of queer community and queer queer identity is incredibly white and when white queers weaponize that intersection they take up so much space and push the rest of us out of the way mm. yeah Laniok I I want to ask a bit about you know that figure in there that you heard um that Less than half, um, so for 45.2% of people surveyed by ECU like felt a sense of belonging to a wider queer community. Do you, do you feel that sense of belonging? How does that figure sit with you? To be honest, I think that the concept of community and the definition of community has been so overused and exaggerated. I mean, what, what does community even mean? Like we're all existing in different cities, different suburbs. We come from different places. We occupy different intersections. If we're talking about the community, like capital T, capital C, I think what we're really talking about is a dominant culture and a dominant perspective of what it would mean to occupy that identity. And what I think it often means is upholding and hearing people from that said community that have the access to hold a platform, just like the loudest and most prominent people that occupy that intersection don't represent the community. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) What does it even mean to be from the community? Well, yeah, I suppose like 100% because everybody, every community is so so disparate. There are so many like mini pockets of it and spaces for sure. 
rural Aboriginal communities? Are we talking about Aboriginal communities in the city? You know, are we talking about different age groups? I just think it's a bit dangerous to be talking about the community as a monolith when our experiences are so varied. For sure. So in speaking to that, like, tell me about what, um, where you find community more specifically and where you'd like to be finding it, um, where it could be, I guess, things could be better. Oh, God. I mean, that's the question, isn't it, that we're all trying to figure out. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a strange time to be alive with access to social media and, you know, representations of what it means to be who you are. Like, it's so wild to be having an outside outsider's sort of opinion defining who I am. Like, I know who I am. I know what it means to be me. And I think I'm trying to zone in more so on my actual lived concept of community, the people who are in my life and who shape my experience and feeding into that so that it feeds back to me rather than putting my energy out to some external identity for some external validation of what it means to be who I am. Only I know who I am. I suppose my definition of community has changed a lot. I grew up in regional New South Wales in this little town called Nambucca, which is very small. I grew up with all my mob up there and then moved down to Melbourne um, to do high school and a scholarship. And so, like, yeah, my definition of Indigenous community is very different and it changes in different contexts, you know, defining community as versus, you know, urban versus being in a more kind of um, regional place. I don't know what community means to me. I suppose... You know, my inner circle of mob and, you know, Aboriginal mates are all queer. Yeah, like I I suppose I surround myself with other queer Indigenous people. And so, uh, yeah, I suppose that is my community and that's okay and that's a really safe space for me. But, yeah, community changes for me. In the research we were just talking about, apparently a third of people who were um, surveyed felt invisible within their Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Nick, do you ever feel invisible or underrepresented in this space? Definitely, especially with my queer identity, especially when I was first defining it, because um, when I first came out as a non-binary person, I was involved in a lot of um, Indigenous community stuff, and me coming out as non-binary was so confusing to so many people that they didn't quite understand how to handle it or how to approach it. And I felt totally like minimized and invisible. Like I tried to tell them what my preferred name was, uh, what my preferred pronoun was. Um, And they, in our community events and stuff, they'd have my name written up on the board, my preferred name, and next to it, my dead name put up right next to each other with like a slash in between them uh, to make it sound like you could just interchange between the two. I felt so invisible, like no one was really taking me seriously or something and it really pushed me out of that community at the time yeah have you managed to kind of like you know have educate or reconcile or go back into that space or is that rift still there it's been a it's been interesting because at the time it was a lot of back and forth because um there were queer people in that community of course there's queer people in every indigenous community and um there and there were those people there to help me through that but at the end of the day where i found my true self in um among like both my queerness and my um indigeneity was myself at the time i was really seeking a lot of um, validation from a lot of other people when really the validation was meant to come from myself. 
Yeah, super important lesson to learn. Um, Laniok, have you ever experienced that? Um, you know, you talked a bit before about experiencing kind of being, you know, like outsideness in the queer community, but has that ever gone the other way? You know, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I guess it's like Nick was sort of saying, you know, there's, I mean, there's queerness everywhere and there's certainly queerness within Indigenous, all Indigenous communities, all Indigenous families, but there's also homophobia everywhere. Um, I would be lying if I said that I hadn't experienced homophobia within my own Aboriginal community, but it's not at the forefront of my mind in those spaces. But I think I also have a lot of privilege in being quite femme and not really being a threat to the gender binary in that way, in a very similar way that I don't think I, I don't experience racism in very abrupt or aggressive forms because I'm quite light-skinned. I don't experience homophobia in a lot of abrupt or aggressive forms because I'm quite femme and can be quite hetero-passing. Um, the danger and the damage comes sort of later on, you know, if in a, say, in my, like, um, intimate relationships, the racism that I experience usually comes later on when we're in the motions of a relationship and they're meeting my family or they're, you know, calling me drunk, telling me that they love dot paintings, like all sorts of weird <laughs> shit happens, yeah. um, you know, like just real weird things. Um, and so I think, you know, my experience of homophobia within the Aboriginal community and within my own family comes in more subtle ways, I think. And yeah. that's the privilege that I hold being quite femme and light-skinned. You know, I, I totally agree um, with you, Lani. It, it is definitely something that's kind of at the, you know, not at the forefront of my mind just because, yeah, being Indigenous and, and racism is, has always been the most overt force in my life. Um, and I just haven't been warranted, not even like the, the space to explore even what it means to be a woman, you know, little less being like the thought of being non-binary or the thought of being queer you know it's like this is what we're fighting for we we have our designated days and we have our events in the indigenous calendar but I just feel like I it, it, it's yeah I, I completely agree with you there um yeah I suppose for my own community if I'm being totally honest um I haven't really come out to like my Aboriginal family yet and I know this is ironic because I'm like saying this on the radio national radio I doubt I'm, yeah no offense but I just don't think my elders would probably be listening to the hookup I'm not gonna lie guys but no <laughs> so it's I'm fine we kind, of, kind of okay staying in here um they might be if they are then he then I'm then I'm coming out I'm, I'm pulling a Dana Ross and I'm coming out guys <laughs> surprise man I just haven't had that conversation yet just because it, I I'm I'm at peace you know and I, I've got my indigenous queer best mates down here in Melbourne I've got my mob and my little tribe and at the moment at this point in my life I'm kind of okay with you know selected family members knowing and not everyone I don't feel the need to do this big kind of grandiose I'm gay everyone you know and and if people want to do that then they can but in my mind it's kind of does feel like a bit of a colonial thing to be like everyone in my entire extended like we're mob we, we have big families if I had to tell every single person in the family that I'm gay it would take me like so long so I'm just like uh, you, you know, gotta tell that one auntie she'll tell everyone yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I was like I'll tell a few and then if it gets around it gets around you know um, we, you know, how, yeah, we love to gossip. So Lord knows. So there you go. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, um, I will. But yeah, at the same time, again, it's like, yeah, 
being obviously someone that's effeminate, looking and passing and obviously being interested in women, it, it is not as threatening, I suppose. Yeah. If there was homophobia in the community, I think it's important to acknowledge maybe the history of, you know, Christianity and missionaries and how that would have had a big effect and how maybe some of our elders and some of our, our community leaders would maybe think about, you know, being gay, you know, um, and the church, how, you know, having such a big influence. Um, so I think that's important to maybe recognise in one of the reasons it's a bit harder for mob to come out as well, just because, you know, religion can play a really big part in some of our communities. So, yeah. Yeah, I was actually, when I was, when I was uh, listening to all of that, it was just something that popped into my mind is that homophobia is a colonial concept. Yeah. It's a colonial <laughs> yeah. construct. Yeah. Um, like, I would never blame, like, a First Nations person for their homophobia outright because it all comes from the colony. Mm. It comes yeah. from the colonial stuff. I Me mean, personally, like, I deal with racism the most, but just like homophobia, it's a <laughs> colonial construct. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Yeah. We we spoke about this um, actually on the hookup a few years ago about the, the erasure of queer um, Indigenous history. It's like a pretty sad thing to bear, it feels. Um, the, everyone we spoke to back then said they knew quite little. I don't know. Um, Nick, do you have like much insight into or understanding of, of queer Indigenous history? That's such a good question and you answered it already. Yeah. It's like there's so little because it's because of what colonisation did yeah. to our queer people. Mm. Like it did it to Indigenous people all across all across all countries here. Um, but the queer people in particular in our, in, in our countries, in this land, they were, they were like fully like stamped out and attacked in so many ways that there, there was so much erasure there. We can pick out little bits and pieces from the history, but there's a concept of, uh, Mimi spirits. I don't know which, um, culture it comes from within, uh, and within our people, but it's like Mimi spirits were genderless spirits. And there's bits like that, little pieces like that, that tell us that we had concepts of like gender non-binaries. We had concepts of all these little things that um, every time I think about it, I just wish it wasn't like erased. I wish so much yeah. of our history wasn't erased. A lot of it has been lost. And that's one of the things that I kind of often think to myself about with, and I'm probably using the, I don't know if I'm using the term right, but like when people talk about intergenerational trauma, it's not just things that happen in Pakistan, it, it's it's also, you know, um, the missionaries and indoctrination of Catholic way of life and, and all their biblical teachings brainwashed into those children in those missionaries and then they grow up with that and then they get taught to hate a lot of things and then, you know, they start to get exposed to the real world and and sexuality and it's hard for them to adjust because through the, the line and, and through each generation, it's very much pushed into them like, no, that's wrong that's that's not the way of life and so couple that with the fact that a lot of queer indigenous history has been completely erased to the point where we know very little i only know little bits and pieces and i couldn't even tell you if it's true or not but but one of the things my auntie would tell me was that queer indigenous people would be seen as as people with a unique perspective and were often given quite a uh, to put it widely, a high rank in in the community because they had a unique perspective of both male and female. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just something that she would tell me. I don't know whether it was just her way of like, hey, you can come out to me, I won't tell. Um, <laughs> but she's the auntie that would. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and so and and that's a, a huge struggle as well because it's not a new concept. Sexuality isn't just something that's popped up in the last 20, 50 years. It's always been there and it's always going to be there. Always was. <laughs> exactly. And that's just one of those things that I think about the intergenerational trauma is that it's, it's so much bigger than what people just think it actually is because it does fall into to my grandparents being taught a certain way and then them teaching my parents a certain way. I mean... I come from a very privileged place where that wasn't so prevalent in our family. Um, even my extended family, it was as long as you don't get locked up, as long as you do right by your mum, we don't care. Like as long as you're happy with what you're doing. So I was very privileged in that regard, but, but not everyone else is. Jojo, I want to chat to you about your brief but extremely impactful appearance on Drag Race Down Under, especially bringing the always was, always will be message to the main stage. What was the international reaction that you've had? Uh, so I've mostly had like a lot of intrigue, a lot of like we had no idea, we'd never heard about this. I'm like, clearly. Um, <laughs> it's Australia's best kept secret to the international world. A lot of positive, a lot of people like I had no idea, you know, i I had a look at something and I've been down a rabbit hole for a couple of days now and and also a lot from Indigenous communities in different countries like Brazil, Canada, like they've reached out and like and shared their stories as well and it's just been absolutely beautiful. Occasionally I'll see something stupid, I just scroll past it. <laughs> and, and Jojo, like there were definitely controversies about this season, um, particularly about the... Uh, I guess, past uh, behaviours of certain contestants. And um, the the blackface of Scarlett, um, Scarlett Adams was, like, addressed on the show um, to the point where uh, RuPaul said the following. Now, I'm sure there are people that would want me to cancel you right here, right now. But I'd rather this be a lesson in humility and accountability. And I pray that all of us can learn and grow from our mistakes. This was very controversial when it happened, a lot of chat in the community. I wanted to hear your perspective on it, especially since you weren't actually there in the room to be able to respond to that. Yeah, so that was something that I didn't find out until after I'd left, which in one way I'm kind of glad that I didn't know while I was there because I probably would have gotten a very different edit if I had have brought it up. Like <laughs> she walks in, oh, hi, stay away from my contour stick. Um, I was quite angry for a few days because like everyone would was putting everything out there and it wasn't just one instance it was an entire career built on it it was every debauchery act that you could think of when it comes to cultural appropriation and and not just cultural appropriation but the disrespect that went into it like the Australian day one I got tagged in a lot of that because people genuinely thought it was me that's what how dark the makeup was and and the blacked out teeth and just the unnecessary steps of like okay you just digging it in now as for how it was handled um how can I say this without getting in trouble (laughs) I think it could have been handled better I think there could have been more of a conversation around it I think it would have been nice if if we were brought back to have that conversation I don't believe in giving a free pass at all I also don't believe in completely crucifying someone for something that they've done I say that very lightly (laughs) um but I think I don't know. I, I don't really know how I would have handled it. I don't know what I, I what I wanted out of it. I just know that it wasn't handled in the best way that it could be. It wasn't handled in an, in an open dialogue kind of way. And it's just what was said on stage just kind of felt like a bit of a cop-out. I don't know if everyone else feels the same way when they watched it or 
or anything like that. It's just, and it would have been nice to have myself and Coco there to be part of that conversation. Like, I don't know how in advance the producers or any of that knew or whether they found out like me as it was all happening. I'm, I genuinely don't know, but yeah, it's just one of those things that it's just so frustrating and it pisses me off. <laughs> and, and my biggest thing was like, once it all came out and everyone knew that I was on there, I was hearing so many stories and, and one of the biggest things was, you know, being on the microphone and, and certain things were said that were quite horrible. My thing was that apology isn't for me to accept. It's, it's because I can only accept one part of that and that's the Indigenous community, but I don't speak for the whole community, so I can't accept the apology on behalf of the Indigenous community. And I feel like it's up to Perth's Indigenous community to, like, to look at them to see what how they feel about it because it wasn't exactly my safety that was brought into question as an Indigenous person at that, at that venue while she was saying those things and all of a sudden <clears throat> the main entertainer on stage is saying these racist things. Sometimes it can kind of fuel particularly a white audience like, oh, they've said this, we can get away with this. Like they'll jump on it and, and get that mob mentality about it. Yeah. I'm just glad that I wasn't in the venue because in, I would have instantly felt unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think so much like speaks to what everyone was saying earlier about feeling like just generally in the community that people can get away with, with things like this. So I just want to throw it open to everyone. Um, what would you sort of like to see change and how do you think the um you know generally queer people in australia like can need to improve what can we do better um to to stamp this kind of thing out i guess i think the the best thing that you can do is stamp it out when you see it the microaggressions are there if you look for them and you don't have to look very hard you will find them in a white queer community stamp them out as soon as you see it call them out on their crap put them in their place like not saying anything just perpetuates it. So prepare to be called out. This is your warning. <laughs> yeah, um, call it out. Uh, definitely, uh, even if you feel uncomfortable, don't laugh along with them. That's something that I used to do when I was younger. Um, it just it just makes them feel like it's even more okay to do it. Honestly, tell them it's not okay. If you're in a group of people, um, most will most will say, yeah, it's probably not okay if you say something. Laniok, what would you like to see um, change and improve for the experience of queer First Nations people? God. Oh, my God. Can we have another hour of this show? Like, <laughs> honestly, I'd love to. It's, there's a lot to be said. So much. Um, I really think that, you know, the concept of a queer identity and the concept of queer liberation needs to move beyond a shifting towards homo-nationalism and some alignment with or some measurement of success alongside our heterosexual counterparts. Queerness belongs in all areas of life. Queerness and queer justice is, you know, Aboriginal liberation is a queer issue. The occupation of Palestine is a queer issue. You know, queerness is an intersection that exists in everywhere and limiting yourself and seeing Aboriginal people as outside of the concept of queerness is the issue. You know, 
our comfortability, like quotation marks, or our safety, quotation marks, as Aboriginal people in the queer community can't be addressed until queerness expands itself beyond just like skinny white cis gay dudes jumping around in glitter. Like queerness is everywhere. So if you actually want to tackle the issue, understand queerness as an intersection that exists everywhere and the liberation of Indigenous people is a queer issue. So like get your shit together. Come on. I suppose, um, you know, best thing that white fellas can do is just like, um, do your own independent research so you can meet us halfway with conversations, I think. And it also offers you, like, the opportunity to be a really good listener, I suppose, for Indigenous queer people because, like, so many times I'll be like, oh, come home from, like, you know, are we talking to white fellas and I just want to vent about something that's happened and it ends up me having to explain as well as vent. Yeah, meet us halfway with conversations, do your own independent research. Black fellas are so overworked, you know, we do so much we, we invest so much time in educating people all the time that you really have to use Google as a resource, you know. <laughs> we, we can't be educating every single follower in Australia, you know. We're only 3% of the population. You need to get out there and do your own independent research. Meet us halfway with conversation so that when we do talk, you know, it's, it's a, from a place of understanding, like deep understanding, not just we're having to educate you. And then we can start the conversation, you know, because um, yeah. at the moment we're not even there yet. Um, I think I just have to share <laughs> my favourite moment um, of being both queer and Indigenous and I always think about this and it always brings a tear to my eye. Um, I think it was, you know, when I was really young, I was watching the David Bowie um, Let's Dance video clip. Um, I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it's like <laughs> David Bowie who's like my number one queer icon um, with all the mob in the Let's Dance video clip and it's just the most amazing thing and it always makes me so teary. I get very emotional about it because, you know, David Bowie could have had anyone in the entire world in his video clip and he wanted us mob in it. And I think that's so beautiful. And I always think about that whenever I need to pick me up. I'm like, if David Bowie thinks we're deadly, then like, obviously we're really deadly. So yeah. <laughs> Artist and comedian Aretha Brown there alongside writer Laniok, journal and TikTok creator Nick Ritchie and fabulous drag queen Jojo Zaho. Thank you so much for listening to this chat. It was a real honour to be able to hear such personal stories from our panel. And a big thank you to all of them for taking the time to open up to us on The Hookup and be so candid about their experiences of being queer and Indigenous and offering that education that is oftentimes so exhausting. So we really appreciate it. Don't forget, if you have any questions or a topic or story you'd like us to cover, DM us on Instagram at Triple J The Hookup or shoot an email to thehookup at abc.net.au. Catch you next time.